Cornfield, Antietam National Battlefield, 8 a.m., September 6, 2017. There's a very special place for me on the battlefield here. It's one of many I come to, but I find myself here a lot, so it must have something special that pulls me in, that brings me back so often. Cornfield Avenue runs east and west below the southern border of the cornfield and connects the east woods to the west woods. The road itself was not here at the time of the battle. There's a small parking area along the road, and if you look north towards the cornfield, there's a low stone wall that's a convenient place to sit. You won't get a better view of the cornfield from anywhere else, and it's worth it to spend a few moments here. Don't hurry away from this spot. Sit down and wait, look to the north, and see, see what thoughts come to mind. A lot of really nice improvements have been made over the past 15 years or so at Antietam Battlefield. Thank you to Save Historic Antietam Foundation for many of them, and to Park Service staff for opening up the battlefield to hiking trails. I remember coming here as a kid, and although it was a mesmerizing place, it was a place to visit where you never really needed to get out of your car because there was no place to go. A few exceptions back then were at the Bloody Lane and Burnside's Bridge, but not much else. Over the past 15 years now, the park has opened hiking trails across segments of the field, the West Woods, the Cornfield, Bloody Lane, and from Burnside's Bridge on a trail called the Final Attack Trail. All of this allows you to walk and experience the landscape, the geography of the battlefield. You can look at maps of the battlefield all day and never experience the topography, the ups and downs, the slight changes that made troop movements or repositioning of artillery sections entirely successful or devastating failures. But this road, the Cornfield Avenue, and this low stone wall overlooking the cornfield is one place that's been here a long time. It's nothing new. And it's one place where within just a few moments you can see how the landscape shaped the tumultuous morning phase of the battle. From here you can see the cornfield with two distinct levels. On the west side the elevation is higher by 10 to 12 feet than the east side. The cornfield is bisected by a ridge that runs north to south. The east side is lower than the west once you see this geographic feature, you start to see how there were two fields of battle here in this one place. Troops on the higher plateau of the west side were separated from those just yards away to the east by the sharp drop-off that runs north to south. If the clouds of smoke from muskets and cannons wasn't enough, the drop-off and rise in elevation did the rest. Troops on the east side would not have seen what was happening on the west side. The drop-off between the east and west kept the engagement here, one that caused the regimental direction of movement to be almost entirely north to south or south to north. The 155th anniversary of the Battle of Antietam is only days away, and there's a part of that commemoration that I enjoy quite a bit. On the 17th of September at dawn, the park Park Service staff begins the day at the cornfield. They usually hold the beginning part of the ceremony at the northern edge of the cornfield. This is where Hooker's troops first encountered Confederate troops, 
who somewhat caught the Federals by surprise as they rose up and launched a volley at close range. The Park Service uses letters and accounts written by the soldiers of both sides to help us understand the ferocity of the fighting here. It's quite moving and is quite solemn. There is hardly a breath heard as people listen intently. Five years ago, at the 150th commemorative ceremony in the cornfield, the ceremony was held as I've just described, but there was more than just the reading of terrifying letters from combatants on both sides, much more. After the readings were complete, a moment of silent reflection was requested. The Park Service staff let the silent moment linger until it was an uncomfortable silence. Then suddenly, from the eastwoods, a volley of musket fire at the crowd's right flank erupted. The silence was broken in a formidable fashion, and made real the letters we had just heard. After the echoing of the muskets had died off, a cannon fired a shot from over the heads of the crowd from distant behind them, somewhere near the visitor's center, maybe a half mile to the rear. I'll never forget that moment. Never. Fifty muskets fired at us from the east woods. What would twelve hundred sound like? The cannon fire tore and rended the sky overhead and sounded like a giant sheet being ripped down its length. Oh, my gosh! The terror of those sounds is unforgettable. The morning ceremony at dawn ended, and among the two to three hundred visitors there was barely a word spoken as the crowd moved back through the corn. The day had started with a very small but stark reminder of what it may have been like here, September 17, 1862. And today, today, thinking about the morning phase of the battle here, I'm contemplating something new to me. Was a female Confederate soldier killed here in the cornfield? Was her body buried not far from here, perhaps in the East Woods by Union troops of the 10th Massachusetts? Did Erin Good find her grave and her remains? Was her body recovered, and is she buried at Rose Hill Cemetery in Hagerstown? These are the questions we will contemplate in Chapter 3. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Chapter 3, Part 1, The Dead Female Confederate Soldier of the Cornfield Hi again, I'm Mark Brew, your host for the Aaron Good Chronicles. We invite you to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast channel on Podbean. And remember, our Facebook page, Antietam Anthology's Civil War Podcast, has a folder under the Photos tab that shows pictures and important persons involved in each of the chapters. Our question for consideration in this chapter, was a female Confederate soldier killed in the cornfield at Antietam 
Are there any reliable accounts? Our conclusion is yes. There is credible evidence that a female Confederate soldier perished at Antietam in the cornfield based on a reliable account. This is nearly the same question we used in Chapter 1 about a female Union soldier. And like Chapter 1, our conclusion here is the same. Yes, it actually happened. A female Confederate soldier was killed in the cornfield. In Chapter 1, I used a previously undiscovered report about a female Union soldier's remains being recovered by Aaron Good. In this chapter, we'll use a report that is already known, but seems to not be fully understood for its weight or its credibility. At the opening of Chapter 2, I mentioned research about a footnote as the reason for a visit to the U.S. Army Military History Institute at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I'd come across this same footnote several times over the past few years. Other researchers had used it to make a passing reference about a female Confederate soldier who was killed at Antietam without supplying a lot of details of the event. It's hard to describe exactly, but from the way I, it was used, I assume that the researchers who used it didn't put a lot of credence in it. Like I said, the reference to the soldier's death was kind of just a passing thing, and it didn't seem to stand out to the writer as something that really could be important. Finally, in Carlisle, I saw the manuscript the footnote came from, and now I think it's worthy of very close scrutiny, and perhaps even more than that. Let's take a look. The footnote used by researchers was written like this. Mark Nickerson, Recollections of the Civil War by a High Private in the Front Ranks. Memoir, USA MHI. I found out USA MHI means the U.S. Army Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. When I finally went to Carlisle, I wasn't sure what kind of text I would be looking at. Was it a letter? Was it a book that was out of circulation? I didn't have any idea. And that momentarily busied the archivists at the library while they used the few clues I had and tracked down the manuscript and delivered it to me in their library. It came in a folder and I opened it carefully. Inside was kind of a binder loosely held together by a spine of plastic rings along its entire length. A quick review showed it was the memoir of a soldier of the 10th Massachusetts named Mark S. Nickerson. The manuscript was written as a series of letters to his niece about 1910. Like so many Civil War soldiers, Mr. Nickerson decided, at that late period in his life, that it was time to make a written record of his Civil War experiences. Mark Nickerson was from West Cornwall, Connecticut, in far western Connecticut. According to the Cornwall, Connecticut Historical Society, he was living with his aunt after his father had died in 1861. Although his aunt was a copperhead, a supporter of Southern Secession, on June 14, 1861, Nickerson walked from West Cornwall to Falls Village, and then took a train to Massachusetts, to Great Barrington in far western Massachusetts. There he enlisted in the 10th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment. He had just turned 18 and lied about his age and residence, claiming that he was 21 and lived in Falls Village, Mass.
Private Mark Nickerson was proud of his Civil War service and wrote about it in his letters to his niece. According to him, he served three years in Company A of the 10th Mass. The 10th Mass was ordered home to be mustered out at Petersburg, Virginia, June 19, 1864. Private Nickerson served out the full duration of its enlistment with the 10th Mass and then re-enlisted and served nine months in Company L of the 13th New York Cavalry. His record shows service in the Peninsula Campaign under McClellan, Second Bull Run Campaign under Pope, the Antietam Campaign again under McClellan, the Fredericksburg Campaign under Burnside, the Gettysburg Campaign under Meade, and the Wilderness and Petersburg Campaigns under Grant. Mr. Nickerson claims involvement in 14 heavy battles and says he was never wounded or taken prisoner. He calls this a record to be proud of. I agree. Let's turn to Private Nickerson's Antietam experiences and to the full substance of the footnote I'd seen so often. Somewhere in time, someone took Private Mark Nickerson's letters to his niece and organized them into a bound manuscript. Chapter 6 concerns the 10th Mass at Antietam and Second Bull Run. Private Nickerson's recollections about the 10th Mass at Antietam seem off a bit, at least according to what I know about the battle and what I've seen written. He says the unit arrived at the cornfield while it was held by Confederates, and that the 10th Mass drove them out for the last time, and the Confederates retreated to Bloody Lane. Hmm. We'll come back to that, but it, if so, that means the 10th Mass was active on the battlefield on the 17th of September. Private Nickerson then turns to the activity of the 10th Mass after the Army of Northern Virginia left the field and crossed the Potomac back home to Virginia. He wrote, A sergeant in charge of the burying party from our regiment reported to his captain that there was a dead Confederate up in the cornfield whom he had reason to believe was a woman. He wanted to know if she should be kept separate or brought along with the others. The captain, after satisfying himself that this confederate was a woman, ordered that she should be buried by herself. The news soon spread among the soldiers that there was a woman among the confederate dead, and many of them went and gazed upon the upturned face, and tears glistened in their eyes as they turned away. She was wrapped in a soldier's blanket and buried by herself and a headboard was made from a cracker box that was set up at her grave marked Unknown Woman C.S.A. Can we believe Private Mark S. Nickerson? In part yes, and in part no. Nickerson's claims that the 10th Mass drove the Confederates from the cornfield on September 17th are not supported by any text I've read. The 4th Division, under Major General Darius Couch was held back by McClellan. Private Nickerson's manuscript says his unit cleared the ridge at South Mountain on the 17th while the battle raged and was rushed into battle. I just don't think so. What I do believe is that Nickerson's unit, the 10th Mass, arrived on the field in the area of the East Woods and went into detail to help bury the dead on September 18th. I think he may have heard from other units in the area about the fighting from the day before. Not to mention that maybe he just flat out exaggerated his service in his letter to his niece. 
On the 18th there were still Confederate soldiers in the West Woods, and while Private Nickerson and the 10th Mass did not drive the Confederates back to Bloody Lane on the 17th, they might justifiably feel that once they arrived in the East Woods, the Army of Northern Virginia in the West Woods decided to head back to Virginia. It's just a guess. But can we throw out the story about the Confederate soldier, the female Confederate soldier? I don't think we can. I hope you'd listen to it again if you want to. A lot of what I call exaggeration in the accounts of Civil War vets seems to happen in the absence of witnesses, but not this account of Private Nickerson about the dead female Confederate soldier. He fills his account with witnesses, from the sergeant to the captain to the men of the regiment who seek out and study the face of the corpse. And if Private Nickerson made up the story, I don't think he did. He didn't forget to include a statement that describes how moved the men were when they saw her laying in the cornfield. Here is even more of what Private Nickerson wrote about the experience of seeing her body there. Nothing in my experience up to that time affected me as did that incident. I wanted to know her history and why she was there. She must have been killed just as the Southerners were being driven back from the cornfield. In almost all wars now and then a woman gets into the army, usually through acquaintance with or an understanding of an officer, in order to escape physical, physical examination. I think Private Nickerson is truthful. He's either an honest, truthful soldier or one of the very best liars I've ever heard. I practiced law for a while and I've heard a lot of them. One thing they almost always leave out is an understanding of how what they saw affected them or other witnesses. I believe Private Nickerson. Let's call the body he saw and help to bury female soldier number three. We'll return with part two, A Tale of Two Cemeteries, in just a minute. Washington Confederate Cemetery at Rose Hill Cemetery, Hagerstown, Maryland, 10 a.m., September 7, 2017. This, this is the final resting place for about 2,300 dead Confederates of the Antietam campaign. I pass by here often on a busy artery going into or leaving Hagerstown. It's just outside the large forged iron gates between the cemetery and South Potomac Street. The Washington Confederate Cemetery is a separate part of Rose Hill Cemetery and is marked by a large arced gate that faces South Potomac Street and says Washington Confederate Cemetery. Welcome back to the Aaron Good Chronicles. This is Chapter 3, The Dead Confederate Soldier of the Cornfield, Part 2, A Tale of Two Cemeteries. I'm your host, Mark Brew. We haven't heard from or anything about Aaron Good since Chapter 1, but now it's time to turn our full attention back on his works 
with the dead of the Antietam campaign. In Chapter 1, we left off with Aaron right after the first meeting of the trustees of the Antietam National Cemetery. Aaron attended that meeting with his list of 1,500 field grave locations and names of soldiers in those graves that he had found around the battlefield. We know that in many instances, starting days, just days after the battle in September 1862, good exhumed bodies from their graves to make identifications. We also learned in Chapter 1 that although the ANC trustees heaped praise upon Good for giving so freely of his time in pursuit of truly humane and praiseworthy efforts, that Good was motivated by pure greed for his early work in the field graves of the battlefield. In March and May 1863, newspapers in Hagerstown and Chambersburg posted warnings about Good charging for information about where bodies could be found. Finally, in Chapter 1, we learned that Aaron Good was hired by the ANC trustees at its first meeting in May 1865, and was asked to continue to look for field graves, and that after he did that, he discovered the remains of a female Union soldier in June 1865. The U.S. Burial Corps began collecting bodies of Union soldiers from their field graves in October 1866 and finished the work in August 1867. The Antietam National Cemetery is one of the most honored shrines to American veterans anywhere in the world. It is gorgeously serene. It is stately, dignified, and inordinately appropriate to the Union sacrifices of September 1862, sacrifices that directly motivated President Lincoln to declare emancipation. The cemetery was officially dedicated just five years after the battle in September 1867, with a tremendous ceremony attended by President Andrew Johnson and 50,000 distinguished guests. The role of the town of Sharpsburg in the creation of the memorial grounds is significant because its residents did so much manual labor, intricate masonry, and stonework. Payroll records show local names such as Bender, Mose, Poffenberger, Benner, Porter, and Kretzer as workers who constructed the mammoth stone wall around the perimeter. Other young men of the town assisted with the collection and burial of the Union dead. The serenity of the ANC, however, is somewhat tarnished by its pre-construction history, with staggering numbers of deaths on both sides resulting from Lee's first invasion of the North there was a desperate need to find a place to put all the bodies when the war ended. Antietam was a logical place because so many were lost there. Eventually the state of Maryland approved the purchase of land near Sharpsburg and a charter for the establishment and administration of a permanent cemetery. However, the charter required the participation of other northern states that had lost soldiers at Antietam. Although the incorporating document, document stated that it was to be a final place of rest and repose for all the dead of the Antietam campaign. Sometimes ugly and sometimes virulent political wrangling between the charter states resulted in an outright refusal to allow Confederate soldiers to be buried there. The idea, the idea of honored Union dead lying shoulder to shoulder with rebels was unthinkable to some to whom no compromise was possible. 
Maryland and West Virginia were the most seriously offended by the determination because they had contributed money to the purchase of the cemetery grounds, and they had suffered the loss of both Union and Confederate soldiers. The proposed solution was to find a separate place to bury Confederates, but that idea really did not suit either side. Petty spatting and ugly political discord continued to cause delays, and the thousands of Confederate dead in shallows eroded and exposed field graves around Sharpsburg would just have to, if they could, stay put a little longer. After the opening of the ANC, a rancorous segment of the town complained about the mistreatment, unfairness of the situation, and indignity in practical terms, what would be done with the many thousands of dead Confederates buried in shallow field graves in the town lots, farm fields, and abandoned wells and along every roadside and path of Lee's retreat. In the five years since the battle, most of the graves had seriously eroded. The sight of bones, of legs, arms, and skulls protruding above the earth was vastly common, wherever one traveled in the area around, or surrounding Sharpsburg. Children walking to school passed the exposed graves of Confederates every day, and it is easy to imagine that a kind of numb immunity set in, or perhaps an instinctive turning away to avoid the catastrophic and very real remnants of carnage. The deteriorating condition of the graves was due to desperate and hurried efforts of Lee's defeated army as it moved west to cross back over the Potomac to Virginia during the overnight period from September 18th to September 19th. During the retreat, the wounded were carried as far as possible, but when hope expired, and their last breaths were drawn, parties of soldiers would break from the ranks to hew and claw a shallow grave. Usually they had no shovels, and were forced to rend at the earth with rifle butts, bayonets, boards, and sticks. Their efforts made only a shallow hole no more than about eighteen inches deep, with barely enough dirt to cover the bodies. After the Confederate retreat, all roadsides leading west to the Potomac from Sharpsburg were crowded with these dirt-starved graves as the bleakest reminders of the failed Confederate invasion. By 1867 the Confederates' remains were brought even nearer the surface by daily exposure to the elements, the settling of soils, the erosive effects of rains, snow melts, and the heaving of soil due to freezing and thawing. Other factors excessively compounded the grave problem. Cattle, horses, and pigs were generally not penned in barnyards or pastures, and roamed freely. Therefore they were free to kick at and to burrow into graves that held the remnants of Confederate bodies. Dogs, of course, all co also contributed to the desecrations, and there are many records that describe them digging among the burial places and roaming the town while carrying human bones in their mouths or leaving unwanted gifts on the doorsteps of their masters. Flooding from heavy rains and fast snow melts sometimes washed Confederate bones out of the lots on the north side of Alley No. 1, where dozens of Confederates had been buried. The drainage from that location brought the bones directly to the town square, where they floated and bobbed in a slow-draining temporary pond that would form. Something had to be done, and the completion and final dedication of the Antietam National Cemetery drove the citizens of Sharpsburg to demand action. And this is where Aaron Good enters the picture again. 
because in a roundabout way the governor of the state of Maryland addressed the problem of the citizens of Sharpsburg. In 1868, after letters reached him complaining about the exposed and deteriorated conditions of the Confederate graves, he authorized Thomas Bolt, one of the commissioners of the Antietam National Cemetery and vice-mayor of Hagerstown, to hire someone to shore up the Confederate graves and to try to identify the remains of any unknown. The survey was to be completed as soon as possible, and a record made of the location of all Confederate graves. It was anticipated that the record would be used to later go back and find the remains when the political wrangling and discord finally ended and a separate, permanent location was found. Bolt immediately contacted Aaron Good. Yes, Aaron Good, the farmhand of Sharpsburg. Knowing that he had done similar work five years earlier and had worked for the Antietam National Cemetery to help locate graves in the days after the war ended. Just after September 17, 1862, remember this? Good went over the battlefield and dug up the bodies in graves that were unknown or not marked by a headboard. He was able to identify many of these men by personal effects and articles kept in their pockets or tied loosely on strings around their necks. Good kept this record of grave locations and then waited for the expected arrivals of relatives of the dead who came to retrieve the bodies of their lost fathers, sons, or brothers. However, as we know, he was no angel of mercy, and he did not undertake his acts out of concern for the dead on the field or the living who sought the return of the bodies, no. Despite his ghoulish and macabre wartime profiteering, when the organizing committee first met in May 1865, to establish a board of directors for the Antietam National Cemetery, Good's post-battle exhumations of the dead were greatly commended as truly humane and praiseworthy undertakings. Yes, we've covered that. It is difficult to imagine, though, that such praise was made in total ignorance of the news report that Good sold information to people and that they did not know that Good's primary motives were to financially exploit the emotionally weak and suffering relatives of dead Union soldiers. Good's survey of the locations of Confederate graves was completed in the spring of 1869. The final record reports more than 4,000 graves over a widespread area, including Frederick, Boonesboro, Hagerstown, Williamsport, Falling Waters, Shepherdstown, Pleasant Valley, South Mountain, and Sharpsburg. By disinterring the bodies and examining the remains for any indications of identity, Good succeeded in naming more than 700 of those who were previously unknown. The record of the graves locations was published and copies were available to friends of the Confederate dead by addressing a letter to Thomas Bolt in Hagerstown. Supposedly, the volume, the list, compiled by Aaron Good, and now called the Bowie List, was intended to be an aid to those who might try to recover bodies of their lost loved ones. That this was even possible in many instances seems to be made more difficult by hazy and vague descriptions of the grave's locations. Here is a general example of the type of description provided by Good for a location of a Confederate grave from the Bowie list. J.P. Snipes, 15th Alabama. In Mrs. Lucker's second field, south of Barn, on west side of a large rock break, and near a locust and an elm tree. Well, if you knew Mrs. Lucker, then 
Perhaps you might also know where her second field was found, and let's also hope that when you go to look that the locust and elm tree still stand to mark that spot. Here's another interesting grave location. James Shimp, 3rd North Carolina. In Daniel Poffenberger's outlot along the line fence between Poffenberger and Marker, six feet above a forked sassafras. Were the descriptions provided intentionally vague? Probably not. But we wonder if the relatives of J.P. Snipes and James Shimp would be able to find their field graves without the help of a local person. And if help were needed, then good was the logical choice, and good, better than anyone else, understood the worth of his praiseworthy services. In 1872, a section of the Rose Hill Cemetery in Hagerstown was purchased by the state of Maryland for the creation of the Washington Confederate Cemetery. Finally, good survey of Confederate graves was put to use to begin the collection of Confederate remains around Sharpsburg, but the work was slow and took from 1872 to 1874 to move the bodies. Henry C. Muma of Sharpsburg was contracted to perform the removal of remains from field graves and to reinter the bodies in Hagerstown. The collection of Confederate remains, once underway, proceeded very slowly. Apparently the establishment of the new and separate cemetery was far less a priority than the Antietam National Cemetery had been. Two years after the collection of Confederate remains had begun, a Hagerstown newspaper of the period reported the work was finished. We learn from Mr. Henry C. Muma, who was in town on Tuesday last, that under the direction of the trustees of Washington Cemetery, Hagerstown, he has concluded the work of transferring the remains of Confederate dead from the scattered graves around the battlefields of our county to the place provided for them by our own and other states in the above burying place. Every dead body of which he has any information has been removed, numbering in all 2,240, and that at a cost of a dollar and a quarter for each body. The whole business, we are pleased to say, has been conducted with great propriety and economy. If only this news was true, and great propriety and economy had in fact been exercised. Although dedicated in June 1877, over the succeeding years, dozens of bodies of Confederates turned up that had not been collected and instead remained on the battlefield around Sharpsburg. Records of the Hagerstown Trust Bank show the board of directors of the Washington Confederate Cemetery at Rose Hill dispersed money for the collection of Confederate remains many times in the years after 1877. The last disbursement came in 1917, 40 years after the cemetery was dedicated. However doubtful it may be, we can only hope that the last remains are all now in place, and that final rest and repose has finally been granted to the Confederates who fell at Sharpsburg. The Washington Confederate Cemetery is located on South Potomac Street in Hagerstown. Hundreds of vehicles pass it each day. Most people were not even aware that the thousands of Confederate dead who died at Antietam are there, and even fewer people are aware of the trials of history that hindered its creation. Although peaceful in the extreme, it is much less visited and far less grand than the Antietam National Cemetery. Some say 
that is exactly what a Confederate soldier would have wanted, while others say it is precisely what they deserved. from where we started. We've looked at accounts of the deaths of two female Union soldiers and one Confederate soldier. The remains of female soldier number one were discovered by Aaron Good in June 1865. To me, her death at Antietam is unquestionable, and it is also a near certainty that she is buried at the Antietam National Cemetery. I'd bet on that. Female soldier number two's death was allegedly attended by Sarah Emma Edmonds, and Sarah claims to have buried her on the battlefield. But there are issues of credibility, and I wouldn't bank on trying to find this soldier or guess where she might be buried. Not yet, anyhow. Female soldier number three is the Confederate whose dead body was seen by Private Mark Nickerson and men of the 10th Massachusetts Volunteers and he provided a very nice description of her burial. That female soldier number three was killed in the cornfield is something I'd bet on. Whether her body was found by Aaron Good in his search for Confederate field graves isn't known. Not yet. And whether the remains of female soldier number three were recovered by Henry C. Muma is not yet known. But if they were, then she rests in the Washington Confederate Cemetery at Rose Hill. We hope you continue listening in Chapter 4 as we closely examine Aaron Good's survey and search for Confederate field graves and his report called the Blue Buoy List. If you've enjoyed our podcast so far, consider helping us. Can you spread the word to others, please? Please spread the word by Facebook or other social media. Can you refer a friend? Can you submit a comment to us or provide a review? Our recording techniques are improving, and we promise to continue to do that. But if you have comments or reviews, we'd like to hear those. Don't forget, you can contribute accounts of the Civil War or accounts of relatives who served to be presented by us in a podcast we'll call Hometown Civil War. Our email address is ASPA91762 at gmail.com. Can you contribute financially to GoFundMe Antietam Anthologies? We're trying to raise enough to establish nonprofit historical education status, and it does cost. If we don't ever clear that hurdle, we promise all remaining funds will go to Save Historic Antietam Foundation. They work to acquire properties near Antietam Battlefield that should be part of the park, and they're good folks, good stewards, and good friends. To receive notices when each chapter in the Aaron Good Chronicles is ready to listen, follow the podcast by using the follow link on Podbean, or you can like our Facebook page, Antietam Anthologies Civil War Podcast. To know the future, study the past. This is Mark Brew, your host for the Aaron Good Chronicles. Good day. <laughs>